everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from last Sunday's sermon. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's Word and how much He loves you. Let's jump into the Word. We're going to spend our time together in Psalm 101, one written by David. I'll give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be on the screen behind me. And if you don't have a Bible at all, or at least a Bible that you can understand, please come see me afterwards. I'd be happy to give you one to, to keep and to love. So, Psalm 101. I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. When will you come to me? I will live with the heart of integrity in my house. I will not let anything worthless guide me. I hate the practice of transgression. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. I will destroy anyone who secretly slanders his neighbor. I cannot tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. My eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. The one who follows the way of integrity may serve me. No one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace. The one who tells lies will not be retained here to guide me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, wiping out all evildoers from the Lord's city. This is the word of the Lord. Hugh Halter, a missionary and church planner, tells this story in his great book, Flesh, Bringing the Incarnation Down to Earth. And it's a book that I highly recommend. I read it some years ago. But he says this, tells this story. Uh, and Hugh, Hugh is a missionary uh, kind of to North America and a church planner. And he's also bivocational. So he's a house painter on the side, and that's what he's kind of talking about here. So, I once offered up a free paint job during a church auction to raise money for a cause. I figured an elderly woman would bid $1,000 on a quick two to three day job and I could help someone in need without it costing too much. Sadly, 50 bucks got my services. I drove out one morning to meet my client and as I headed into a very rich neighborhood called the Northwest Hills of Portland, I realized that I might be in a pickle. All of the homes were huge, and many of them were positioned on cliffs overlooking downtown. I prayed, but my worst fears were realized. The house was huge, and the back of the home was four stories high on stilts, overhanging a cliff full of blackberry briars. In that moment, I decided to feign illness. But as I put my head on the steering wheel to collect myself, a very gentle but very strong message entered my mind. Paint the house. I knew it was God, but I sat there another 30 minutes to make sure. Eventually, with drooping head and shoulders, I knocked on the door. Out came Ralph, and we talked over the job. The last words I remember him saying were, Oh, and I'd like you to hand paint it with a brush instead of using your paint sprayer so we don't get any overspray on the plants. Perfect, I thought. I should be done just about the time Jesus returns to Earth. For the next four weeks, Ralph and I became friends, sort of like Sylvester and Tweety Bird. I tell you this story because at the time I couldn't find God in any of this. I actually thought that I was wasting precious finances and ministry time. It made no sense at all until I met Ralph's son, Scott, a local businessman. He found out that I had stuck it out with his crazy dad and was so impressed that he eventually joined our church and became my greatest personal friend and financial advocate. 
He helped fund our church plant, and he also bought me a condo that we sold later so we could acquire an awesome mountain getaway spot for my family. Wow. Sometimes, when we have integrity, it really benefits us. Sometimes, no one will know. In Hugh's case, his integrity really benefited him a great deal, right? He could have done what he wanted to do, faked an illness, put off doing this job forever, and probably no one other than the man who hired him would have known that he had canceled. And no one would have known that his illness wasn't real. Who's to prove that, right? But instead, he trusted God, kept his word, and was massively blessed as a result. So we're going to talk about integrity today. What is integrity? What David sort of includes in his vow of integrity in Psalm 101. And then lastly, how integrity isn't an end in itself. I will sing of faithful love and justice. I will sing praise to you, Lord. I just, I just want to point out this morning that we sing about what we value. We write songs about what we value. This morning, we came in and together we sang songs. We sang songs about Jesus, because as a community, we Christians, we treasure Jesus. Many of you are here this morning because you've decided that Jesus is the most important thing, and he's worth devoting your entire life to, and so you're going to sing songs about Jesus and his greatness. If you flip on the radio, you're largely going to hear songs about romantic love, and its opposite, heartbreak. Why? Because as a culture, we cannot fathom anything more compelling than romantic love. This, there, this could be a whole sermon in itself. I'll save it for Valentine's Day, maybe. But if you listen to the average love song, you will hear sentiments like, you complete me, or sort of implied, I was only a miserable half person until I found you, right? Because we're, we're looking for God, but we end up trying to make another person our God. And when, you, when truly you will only ever be made completely whole when you know and love Jesus and let Jesus love you and not when you know and love another human being. Only Jesus will never fail you, never let you down. Kind of the thing that Rick Astley promises, right? He'll never be the subject of a breakup song unless, of course, you, like plenty of people in the culture today, end up breaking up with him. But we sing about what we find to be most important. I'm going to a few baseball games coming up. Many people will stand and remove their caps. Can you believe that? They remove their caps to sing a song about a country that they find to be very worthy about singing about. We sing about what we cherish. You might turn on the radio and go to a different station, and you might lament the sexualization of lyrics across the spectrum, especially in hip-hop. Again, we make music about what we love the most, mostly. And a song can really move the needle or elicit a reaction. But, but David, he chooses to sing about faithful love and justice. Attributes perfectly encapsulated in this God that he serves. Because that's what David, that's who David values most. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. I will pay attention to the way of integrity. I shared this quote the other day from my first personal Facebook page, uh, but it's so good I have to share it with you this morning. John Mark Comer, in his book, which some of the ladies here at the table uh, have been reading through together, the, uh, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says this, because what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention 
to. That bodes well for apprentices of Jesus who give the bulk of their attention to him and to all that is good, beautiful, and true in the world. But not for those who give their attention to the 24-7 news cycle of outrage and anxiety and emotion-charged drama or the nonstop feed of celebrity gossip, titillation, and cultural drivel. And then he says, as if we give it in the first place, much of our attention is stolen by a clever algorithm out to monetize our precious attention. What you give your attention to is the person you become. Yikes. What are you giving your attention to? What are you giving the bulk of your attention to? For David, it's God and it's integrity. And if God, the true and living God of the Bible, if Jesus has your attention, if he gets the majority of your attention, if you read his word and you pray and you think about him, if, if when your mind wanders, it wanders to him, you will become like him, I suspect. Paul says this in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. If you do that, if you dwell on those things, and integrity would certainly fit the bill, then you will become those things. Integrity, in case you're trying to sort out that concept in your head, is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. But I think perhaps more helpful is the definition by Charles W. Marshall, a motivational speaker. The definition, which is often misattributed to C.S. Lewis, which is, by the way, the, the highest form of flattery, right? I hope that I say something brilliant enough one day that people say, that could not have been Joey. It must have been C.S. Lewis, clearly. But Marshall's definition is this, and you've probably heard this before. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. This is what David aspires to do. And, and even in his integrity and his worship, he still doesn't feel close to God. He says, when, when will you come to me, he cries out. And he's not, he's not talking to integrity there. I know he's talking about integrity. He's not saying integrity, when will you come to me? He's saying, God, when will you? I'm going to live this way. God, when will you come to me? You will live a shallow Christian life if you live a Christian life at all, if it is dependent on feeling closeness to God. Don't feel close to him right now. Pursue anyways. Worship anyways. Have integrity anyways. Keep going. Don't feel his presence. You're in good company if you've read the Psalms. This is why I urge you to read the Psalms regularly. If you, if you keep going with that practice we started with at the beginning of the summer, of reading through the entire book of Psalms every month, if you can stick with it, I would encourage it. You can follow the, the whole just range of human emotions, the whole range of experience with God if you stick with the Psalms. You open up the Psalms every morning and you're, you're likely to say more often than not, yeah, God, I'm feeling like that right now. And you'll learn to pray your feelings. So even with this question, when will you come to me? Even with that missing element of God's presence, he still doubles down. David still doubles down. I will live with a heart of integrity in my house. I will not let anything worthless 
guide me. Literally, I, I will not set before my eyes any worthless thing. That's the, that's the opposite of Philippians 4.8, right? I will pay attention to the way of integrity. I will praise you. In return, I won't let any worthless thing, any non-praiseworthy thing guide me because what you give your attention to is who you become. And what you give your ear to might very well be what guides your life. And he says, I hate the practice of transgression. Do you here this morning hate sin? It's, it's, it's one step to come to church and say, you know what? Pastor said that the Bible says that I should love my neighbor. Now I can't stand my neighbor. So while I would find it incredibly rewarding to just lose my mind on my neighbor, I'm going to resist even though I think the most satisfying possible scenario would be just to go off on my neighbor. I'm going to resist. Okay, maybe that's a step. That's kind of loving sin, but choosing not to do it, right? Despite your better judgment, so you think. Maybe some of you are in that place this morning. But we believe that Jesus wants to change us from the inside out. He doesn't want to change merely our behavior, but our very hearts. We want hearts that love God and hate all the things that fly in the face of God's best for us. So, so modifying your behaviors might be your sort of first step in loving God, killing your flesh and all of that. But I hope you come to this deeper place where you hate your own sin. And even though you might trip up in it time and time again, that you despise it every time you do it. We're good at hating other people's sins, Right? Like, as a culture, we're good at pointing out sins that we'll probably never commit. But, but do we hate our own sin? And can we vow, it will not cling to me. It will not cling to me. A devious heart will be far from me. I will not be involved with evil. I will not know evil, maybe more literally. David is talking about his royal court, and he's saying, not only will I myself not partake in anything evil personally, he's like, that's a given, but I will not allow perverse or evil individuals in my court. I won't be in the presence of evil. That's how much I hate evil. I won't even let it happen around me. And then he says, I will destroy anyone. Extreme language. Destroy anyone. I will destroy anyone. And if we hadn't just read this psalm, and, I, you, and you had to like kind of mad lib it and fill in the, the next line, right? You might expect them to say, who hurts a child. Or I'll destroy any man that lays a hand on a woman. Or I'll, I'll destroy someone who murders or rapes, right? Like something, some just whatever the worst sin you can think of. I'll destroy anyone who does that. I remember hearing conversations as a kid about like the most heinous crimes and people saying, I wish they'd just do it to them, just do it back to them, right? Which is problematic and not particularly in line with the Christian faith or the way of Jesus. But nonetheless, we expect that sentiment to follow the king saying, I will destroy anyone who. But he, he says something else, something kind of unexpected. I'll destroy anyone who secretly slanders their neighbor. You're like, take it easy, David. Because okay, first of all, now maybe you're talking about my sin a little bit. So like, that's high punishment for something we see as no big deal in our society. In our society, David would log on to social media and he would just go nuts. If he watched a political debate, he would lose his mind, right? Or maybe that's public slander. Maybe he's okay with public, just privately slander, he says. So then maybe he'd go to your 
your workplace or your school and just start like slaughtering people because everywhere you go, it's gossip and slander, right? David's saying he's not putting up with it. He's not taking it lightly. It's a big deal how you talk about other people created in the image of God. Their reputation is at stake. And if you're a Christian and you're the one doing the slandering, then God's reputation is at stake too. It's a big deal. Slander is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. A Christian isn't someone who no longer sins. A Christian is someone who knows that the wages of sin is death and that Jesus died in our place so that we wouldn't get death but life. And if our sin cost Jesus his life, then we shouldn't be flippant about even the smallest sins. David continues, I cannot tolerate anyone. Again, we expect him to say anyone who cheats or steals or kills or, or something. I cannot tolerate extreme language, cannot even tolerate. Like, think about it. Who won't you tolerate sitting here? You'll tolerate a lot, right? You'll probably tolerate quite a bit. We're tolerant people. David won't even tolerate anyone with haughty eyes or an arrogant heart. A haughty demeanor, he means. Do you know what haughty means? So I'm, I'm a millennial, part of the greatest generation, as many call it. Uh, and people always laugh when I say that. I Do people not say greatest generation, millennials? Anyways, the word haughty was used different when I was in high school. Do you still say, Gen Xers here, do you still say hottie? Do, do, do people still say hottie? No? No one? No one? Hottie? No? Okay, good. Well, for the rest of the, uh, the Gen, Gen X and millennials, hottie here, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, just means someone who's arrogant, somebody with an air of arrogant superiority or a disdain for others. And David won't tolerate people like that. But arrogance is commonplace in our society. It's commonplace. You think you work harder and you deserve more than others. Or you think you're smarter and more self-aware than others. Athletes and musicians. Rappers basically spend a ton of time telling you how they're the best, bragging about what they have. Or Christians. Maybe you think you're more moral than everyone else. And then pride starts to creep in a little bit. You liked it better when I was talking about those other groups of people, probably. We don't bat an eye at arrogance in our society, just like we don't bat an eye at slander. But what, what if the church was known for a different standard, where we lived above all of that, where we didn't just not slander other people, which would be a great first step, but we didn't tolerate slander. And we also didn't look down on slanderers lest we be guilty of a different sin, right? Where, where we lovingly rejected the sin that a sin-sick world has called normal or even good. That is integrity. Not only living like saints in the public eye, but in our thought life, in the privacy of our own home, out of view of other people, still living like Jesus is king. Doing the right thing when no one is watching. He says, my eyes favor the faithful of the land so that they may sit down with me. King David will not favor those who bring him some sort of advantage or whatever, but, but rather those who have good character, those who walk with God. The one who follows in the way of integrity may serve me. Again, this king values integrity above all else. No one who, lives, no one who acts deceitfully will live in my palace. 
acting deceitfully feels like it's normally like a, a prerequisite for politicians and working in politics in most people's estimation in our culture, I would say. But in David's palace, no one will be taking up residence who lives deceitfully. He's not putting up with it. No one who tells lies will be advising him, only honest people. And then he ends with this. It's a great way to end this psalm. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, wiping out all the evildoers from the Lord's city. Again, this is intense. What, what level of evildoing must you be guilty of for David to like wake up, have his morning coffee, and then destroy you? <laughs> right? Like, if I slandered someone, or like, what are we talking about here? Does he mean literally destroy you? We have so many questions. And then, of course, we're like, this is in the Bible. So should I wake up, like, do my devotions, and then go out and destroy all the evildoers in Lake Township? Like, is that like the biblical response to evildoing? The answer is no. But my question is, and if you allow me just to make this about you for a moment, what if you woke up in the morning and before everything else, what if you got before the Lord and you said, what evil is in my heart this morning? What grudges do I hold? What unforgiveness am I guilty of? What lust am I holding on to? Who did I slander since yesterday morning? In what ways am I haughty or do I look down on people? Where is there a religious spirit in me that thinks I can earn your favor by good works instead of relying on the sheer mercy that you've extended to me? In the morning, survey the landscape of your own heart. What evil doing can be found there? And then, with the Lord, say, destroy this in me. Destroy the parts of my heart that want to lust or judge or not extend forgiveness. Kill those things in me that I might be blameless before you. The Christian life is to be one of spirit-powered integrity. And I want to say this before we end, because I think it's important, and I think this can help inform how you read the Bible. Some people might preach a sermon on this text and have three points about how to have integrity. And they might be funnier than I am, hard to believe. They might be more eloquent than I am. That's easier to believe. Uh, and, and you might walk away being ready to be really good, to really behave yourself, to really have a deep level of integrity this week. You might walk away with a renewed commitment to live with integrity and you're planning how you're going to change your web browsing habits, maybe put some software on your phone, switch to a flip phone. You're not going to talk about people unless it's positive. You're done watching Game of Thrones or whatever, right? And, and that's fine and good and maybe really good if you do it. That's a better way to live, to have integrity for sure, whatever that looks like for you. But that, that message in itself is not a sermon not a sermon. You say, what do you mean? It's just a moral lesson if it doesn't get to Jesus. It might be the best pep talk in the world and you might be fired up and you might even see some fruit in your life, but do better, try harder isn't the Christian message. It is not our gospel. The gospels never do better, try harder as if the doing better and trying harder will earn the approval of God. Rather, the Christian gospel is this. All of our trying harder, doing better, never was perfect. We still sinned. We still sin. We are sinners. We haven't, 
to use the subject of Psalm 101 this morning, walked in perfect integrity. In the dark of night, in the privacy of our rooms, in the privacy of our minds, we've sinned against God. We haven't lived perfect lives of integrity, so all of our doing better and trying harder cannot erase that fact. If you were perfect in your integrity from today forward, it wouldn't change the history of your life. And all of that sounds like really bad news. Like I'm just shoveling bad news on top of you and just beating you down. But the reality is this, and you have to know the reality of your situation in order to understand how good this gospel is, you, you have to really know how good the good news is. You've never lived a perfect life of integrity, and you never could, but someone else did. Jesus Christ, in thought, in word, and deed, in public and in private, he lived a life of integrity like this world has never seen, never slipped up once, he never objectified another person. He never looked down on someone. Never was arrogant, which must be hard when you're the son of God, right? Never slandered anyone, though he was quite often the subject of people's slander. And this Jesus, he lived a perfect life of integrity. But God sent him to give up his perfect life as a ransom for many, and so that his perfect life of integrity would clothe you in a sense, that all the ways you haven't lived with integrity would be placed on him on the cross. He died for your failure to have integrity among other things. And so the good news is if you're in Christ, if you have put on Christ, if you are clothed in Christ, God doesn't see you for all the ways you cannot live up to the way of integrity of Psalm 101. That was all put on the crucified Jesus. God now sees you if you're in Christ as if you had walked in perfect integrity like Christ did. You are forgiven. You have Christ's righteous record in exchange for your sinful one. Not because you did better and tried harder. Not because you're really starting to get it together now. Not because since the last time you deleted your search history, you haven't had one slip up, or, or you now sit with the people at school that you used to look down on, or you're not talking bad about people anymore. It's, it's none of that. That's not why you're forgiven. It's only if and because you put your trust in Jesus, that you can be forgiven. We've all done some things that necessitate forgiveness, haven't we? Michelle, you can come up. Every so often, I just think it's really important to remember this gospel. In, in some way, every week the message comes back to the gospel. That's a, a core conviction and commitment we have at the tables to preach the gospel every sermon. But sometimes it needs to be a little more explicit in its presentation. In a message like today, because I don't want anyone to leave thinking that, that it's by your virtue that God has decided to forgive you, but only by the mercy of what his son accomplished on the cross. His son Jesus, who on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread and after he gave thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, again, giving thanks. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We take communion every week to remember what lengths God would go to bring us home to him, that he would send his own perfect, only begotten son to die that we might live with him forever. And so we take communion every week by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, and remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And we use this as a time for reflection here at the table. So, so, so maybe it's a time for you to just sit with God for a moment before you take the elements and to ask God these things or one of these things. Where, where are the holes in my integrity, in my sort of personal inner life? Or where am I trying to earn my way to God by my own goodness rather than just appealing to your mercy? Or maybe just to ask God, what is it that you're saying to me this morning through this message? And so you can sit here for as long as you need and you can, you can just sit with God and then when you're ready, you can take communion. Communion's available in the back left over there. We just take communion by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. Or if you require a gluten-free communion, that's going to be in the right, on my right in the back. And uh, we don't take communion here in any organized fashion. We don't dismiss by rows or anything. So just whenever you're ready, um, whenever you are sort of in a good place for that, just stand up and take communion, remembering what Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would all leave here this morning with a greater commitment to integrity that we would not take lightly the sins that our culture takes lightly, that the church would truly live different than the rest of the world, that we, each one of us, would live different than the rest of the world. But God, I pray that we would leave here knowing that integrity is not an end in itself, that, that the gospel message isn't just you kids be good. It's someone else was good in all the ways you couldn't be and gave his life for you. So I pray in the moments ahead as we prepare for communion that um, that reality would just take deep root in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.